Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to Come Follow Me Insights from Book of Mormon Central. Today, I'm a five through seven, and we invite you to check out our free scripture study app, Scripture Plus. Let's begin with a little, uh, little exercise, wherever you may be. I'll give you five seconds to do this, okay? And uh, let's, see, let's see if you can accomplish the task. I want you to get your pulse, fill your heartbeat. Ready, set, go. You've got five seconds. Three, two, one, zero, okay? Now, I'm hoping that uh, most of you were able to, to find your pulse. If you're, if you're sitting with a group and somebody didn't quite raise their hand, you might want to reach over and make sure you can get their pulse, just, <laughs> just to make sure that heart's still beating. Now, let's try something different. You've got five more seconds. I want you to get a spiritual pulse. How's your spiritual heart doing? Go. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Now, how did you do with that one? With the first exercise, most of you probably, without hardly even thinking about it, probably just instantaneously went somewhere where you know you could feel your heart beating. What did you do with the second one? Um, five seconds isn't a long time, is it? Alma chapter 5, for me, has become the answer to that question. Tyler, how are you doing spiritually? Uh, I don't know. I've never found a chapter in Scripture with more pertinent questions in an interview format than Alma chapter 5. And it becomes this, this incredible opportunity to get a, a spiritual EKG so you go to a, a cardiologist, and they're going to hook you up to a machine. You can see why this person went to the cardiologist. Their heart's not doing very well. It's not very consistent. The point being, when you do a physical EKG, you can diagnose some things. You can see what's going wrong or what's going right with your heart. By going into ALMA-5, we can create a spiritual EKG to see some things that are going really well, really right, and some things that are really wrong. So this, by the way, is a terrible exercise to do in a group. Th this, quite frankly, it doesn't matter what other people think about you with regards to answering the questions that we're going to dive into in Alma chapter 5. All that really matters is you getting a one-on-one -on -one interview with the Lord through the words of Alma the Younger here. Alma will deliver the questions to you, and then you can prayerfully consider, with the help of the Lord, how am I really doing? How is my spiritual heart, my spiritual pulse? How, how is it doing well, and where is it struggling? And by the time you're done, you, you can get 
all these different questions that he's asking, and we'll, we'll cover some of these as we go along, and you just rate yourself on a scale from 1 to 10, and you might end up with something that looks like, like this, and by the time you're done, you'll be able to recognize, wow, the Lord has been really good to me in some of these areas, and oh boy, I need some help. I need to work on this as I go in. Now, before we – we have to be careful here – before I, I jump you into Alma 5, into the specific questions, there are some people who are born into this uh, earth life with a propensity to beat themselves up and to feel overly guilty and to never feel like they're ever, ever, ever going to be good enough. So if that's something that you struggle with, I would just say uh, C.S. Lewis gave a really, really profound quote regarding this effort to try to be good, to try to improve. Listen to this. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it, and Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation really means, the only complete realist. As you work on improving your life, don't beat yourself up because of the troughs in this kind of an exercise. Recognize that everybody has struggles. There's nobody whose EKG looks like this except for Jesus himself, and none of us is him yet. So we're all going to have struggles, and it's okay. It's part of the process. Uh, one other one other concept to throw out at a, at a high level is a, an idea that President Henry B. Eyring shared many years ago in a, in a setting where he said, speaking to seminary and institute teachers, he said, if you want to look for major improvement in your life, his recommendation was don't look for major things that you can work on improving. He said, find little things that get repeated often in your life and make minor incremental improvements in the way you do those things, and over time, whether it's for an individual or a family or an organization, he says the result over time will be major improvement. Finding things that you repeat often, do it a little bit better, and you'll find that you can sometimes take your strengths to secure the opportunity to improve these, these low spots of your life and just 
keep bringing them forward. And the other thing we would say is don't get overwhelmed with all of that today. Just, you can try. Some people might be able to do that. But if you're like me, I, I'm going to work on one thing. I'm going to work really hard on that one thing and, and try to improve it. So Tyler and I don't always tell each other what we're going to say before we get started. So the little exercise that Tyler just gave us, my immediate thought, right? So like many of you, when I was asked to check my temperature or sorry, my, my pulse, I was like, I sure hope I have one. Um, and if I didn't have one, I thought I might need a little help. That might make for an exciting video. So like many of you, I just tested my wrist here. But as soon as he asked about how's your spiritual, uh, how's your level of spirituality, I realized this is a question. And I started asking myself questions. And I started thinking about Temple Recommend interview questions. And I think about what we have going on here in Alma 5. It's just this whole series of questions. And I want to spend just a few moments talking about what questions are, why they matter, and why they help us on the covenant path. So, let me begin by using a different word than question. It's the word doubt. This word, which unfortunately has become a little more popular in our world today, even among some members of the church, they've been encouraging that doubt is okay. I'm going to offer another idea. The word doubt comes from the word duo or two. And let me map this out. You come to a fork in the road. The pathway branches. You have two options. So you stop. You have doubt. You don't take either path because you don't know. And you just stop and stare. And you just keep thinking and you never progress because you are stopped. Or the word we use in religious language is you're damned in doubt. Now, there are times in life where the scriptures and the gospel make it very clear which pathway to take. And I don't think we need to enumerate examples. But there are many times in life where we don't always know what the best answer is. There are two goods. And if you think about some years ago, Elder Holland told a story about his son. They were out driving in the wilderness and they got lost. And they got to a fork in the road. And they actually did not stop permanently and just wait for revelation. They tried a path and gained information. They ha asked a question and went on a quest and discovered that actually wasn't the right way. And they went back the other way. So what I want to encourage us is to follow the lead of Alma. Instead of encouraging doubt, which is a form of stopping or damnation, let's encourage questions. Uh, that's what Joseph Smith did. Joseph Smith had a question, and he asked, and he pursued, and he gained knowledge. So when you get to a point in your life, and you aren't certain about what to do, pursue, right? Ask a question, and gain knowledge. And the power of the atonement can heal us if we happen to go down a path that really wasn't the best path, and we were making our best effort, but we went on a quest. So let's now talk about the word question. So question comes from an old word that means to ask, but also is related to this word, a quest. 
So I don't know about many of you, but I really love good storytelling, a great movie that's got this exciting quest. Uh, recently, I watched Lord of the Rings with my family, right? This incredible quest to save the world from this evil ring, uh, evil man. And I think many of us get excited about quests, and that's what the whole plan of salvation is. It's this quest to find our way back into the presence of God. And God is asking us to ask questions and to pursue paths and learn. And again, sometimes we might go down a path and find we've learned a lot, but actually we need to be back somewhere else. And the atonement actually can guide us in our questing and to avoid being stopped in the doubt of a double path and not knowing what to do. So as you listen to what Alma is encouraging us to think about, there's no need for you to like answer right now every single question. Go through, maybe number the questions and find some that you find particularly useful for you right now and make a quest about it and find yourself on a path of adventure of learning and spiritual growth. Wonderful. So, as we begin this, this quest through this interview process, I love that perspective, you'll notice that Alma chapter 5 has more question marks, more questing than any other chapter of Scripture. You're not going to find a chapter in Bible, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price that has more question marks than Alma chapter 5. So it lends itself to this self-interview, self-introspection uh, with the help of the Lord. Now, I get it, not every single question in Alma 5 is applicable to you, like Taylor's saying, so we're going to pick and choose the ones that are the most relevant and meaningful and insightful for where we are right here, right now, and where we hope to go on our personal quest. Let's begin. He, by the way, setting here, keep in mind, Alma used to be the chief judge and the high priest of the church. He was the head of both the government and the church. He gave the government to Nephiha, the chief judge uh, seat, so he's no longer the, the chief judge. Now he's 100% of his time focused on working with the people. And you'll notice where he begins his efforts in chapter 5. It's in Zarahemla, which I, I think there's a principle there for us as well, that he starts in the core. He starts by cleansing the inner vessel first, the, the heart of the land, and then he's going to go out to Gideon and then Melech and then Ammonihah. He's going to work his way out from Zarahemla, but when making improvement efforts, it's nice to not worry about other things first, but start at the heart. Go right to the core first, then we'll start going outward is one one uh, applicable way you could maybe look at the way he's organized his, his missionary efforts here. He begins in Zarahemla by reminding the people about the captivity of their, their ancestors, their fathers, of the different times where their, their ancestors have been in bondage, they've been in a situation where they couldn't help themselves, and God came through and delivered them. And so look at his, one of his first questions, chapter 5, verse 6, Now behold, I say unto you, my brethren, you that belong to this church, have you sufficiently retained in remembrance the captivity of your fathers? Now, for those of us who are sitting here in the 21st century reading Alma 5, our parents weren't in 
the Waters of Mormon situation with Alma, or in Limhi's situation in Bondage, our parents' captivities might have been very different than theirs, but the reality is, is everybody's family line has experienced captivity and bondage and deep, intense struggle to some degree or another, and he's asking a really important question of everybody to say, before we start worrying about what you're struggling with, have you remembered how good God has been to the people who have come before you, who have laid a foundation for your faith today? That's an important question. Oh, and by the way, did you notice he didn't ask a yes or no question? These are questions that have ranges of answers. Have you sufficiently retained and remembered the captivity of your fathers, meaning it can be a degree to which you have retained in remembrance, so you can go through and, and judge yourself on how much have you actually worried about what your ancestors have gone through and seen, looked for the hand of God in their lives, which might tie some of you into this spirit of Elijah perspective that opens a whole new area of revelation for people to have the heart of the children turn to the, to the fathers. To actually think about this is an important thing. Now, he then goes on to say, yea, and have you sufficiently retained in remembrance his mercy and long-suffering towards them? So there's the couplet, the struggles that they've had, how good God was to them. Have you sufficiently retained in remembrance that he has delivered their souls from hell. That's important, that it's not just physical release, but from, from spiritual bondage. Um, there are lots of other questions along here, but let's cut down to verse 14. Now behold, I ask of you, my brethren of the church, have ye spiritually been born of God? Now, this is not a question that you do in group settings. You don't ask people, have I spiritually been born of God? To what degree do you think I'm spiritually born of God? This has nothing to do with anybody except for you and the Lord to say, to what degree do I feel like I've been born of God, not just born of the flesh? The next question, follow up in verse, verse 14, have ye received his image in your countenances? And the third one, have ye experienced this mighty change in your hearts? There are a lot of times when you may have this idea that someday in the next life you're going to get to come into the presence of the Savior and, and see him, and that is true. Every, everybody's going to get that opportunity. Based on experiences here in this particular set of questions, have ye received his image in your countenance is an important question because it implies that the harder you try to be good, to emulate Christ, to live your life the way he lived his life, to, to be the kind of person that you were really sent here to be, the more that you will take on his attributes as his son or his daughter in this covenant relationship with him, you will start to look more like him. Not physically, but it's a, it's a Mother Teresa principle. She said when asked, why do you help the poorest of the very poor in Calcutta, India, the, the very people who are ready to die, why are you helping them? And her answer in, in one setting was, she said, I look for the face of Jesus in everyone I meet. 
and she said she was never disappointed. She found the image of Christ in everyone that she met. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is really important for us as we move forward. Your first view, your first glimpses of the Savior in the gospel of Jesus Christ, your first glimpses of the Savior, those fleeting, whoa, I, I caught a flash of something there, probably won't come in vision. They'll probably come in the mirror because you will have started to receive more and more and more of his image in your countenance. And again, you can make these, these judgments on how these questions are being answered on your own personal spiritual EKG, your own pulse. And it keeps going. He asks a series of questions about what it will be like for these people at the last day when they're standing at the judgment seat. What is that going to be like? Can you imagine what that's going to be like when you, when you haven't tried to change because he's speaking to people who are kind of struggling in the church in Zarahemla? So as you work your way through verse 16, 17, 18, all the way down through 22, how's that going to feel standing before the, bar of, before the bar of God? Our invitation to you would be don't read this as, as metaphorical or symbolic theory answer his question, engage with it literally to say, huh, I am going to be standing before God, and what is that going to be like? Don't beat yourself up because you don't worship a God who's angry and who's vengeful and who's, who's waiting for you to mess up so he can make a permanent mark in a book with your name on it. That's not the kind of being he is, but picture a God who's willing to work with you through, through a lifetime of this process of adjusting and adapting, and when you slip in some phases or some periods of your life, all is not lost because you have a Savior and a Redeemer. Look at verse 26. Now behold, I say unto you, my brethren, if you have experienced a change of heart and if you have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can ye feel so now? There may be some of you who are watching or listening who maybe in the past you felt like your testimony was stronger than it is now. For some of you, you're just finding your way back into the church or back into the, the arms of safety of the Savior's infinite love and his infinite atonement. And uh, the question he's asking here is really important. Can you feel so now? This is the, – the spiritual EKG is not a measure of how your heart was 20 years ago or 40 years ago. This spiritual EKG is a gift that keeps on giving. Every time I come to Alma 5 in my personal study of the Book of Mormon, I kind of get excited because it's kind of like a temple recommend interview. You don't just do one of those and then you're done for the rest of your life. You keep coming back to those questions and you keep answering them again and again and again as you move forward in, in your life. Now, verse 27, he asks some pretty, uh, pretty deep questions when he says, have you walked keeping yourselves blameless before God? Now, nobody's going to be able to answer that question and say, yes, 100%, I, I'm a 10 on that. By the way, if you mark yourself at a 10 on that, um, uh, 
Well, maybe you're lacking. You might be lacking in humility. Yeah, the the (laughs) next question is for you. (laughs) Um, If you are called to die at this time within yourselves, that you have been sufficiently humble. So, the idea being, don't don't be overly hard on yourself and don't be overly generous with yourself. Just be honest with yourself and humble and recognize you're going to have some ups and downs along the way here. Notice uh, the second half, verse 27. That your garments have been cleansed and made white through the blood of Christ who will come to redeem his people from their sins. You're noticing, I hope, the incredible symbolism we've talked about a, a couple months ago, the idea of the blood of Christ making your garments white, your garments are cleansed through the blood of Christ. Nothing stains clothing quicker than blood, and nothing cleanses clothing more completely and more perfectly and more powerfully than the blood of Christ, Uh, spotless, stainless, when you involve him. And then 28, 29, 30, he asks some questions. Are you stripped of pride? Verse 29, are you stripped of envy? 30, do you make a mock of your brother? He's asking some of these really important questions for us just in the way we, we live our life and the way we treat other people to say, are, are you really where – have you arrived? Can you stop focusing on the gospel of Jesus Christ? Can you stop relying on his infinite mercy and his atonement? No, everyone needs him desperately in order to try to make any kind of improvement. Nobody is going to increase anything on their spiritual EKG in isolation from Christ. It just doesn't happen. It's impossible. Now, jumping down, he gives uh, some descriptions of what it's like to be in the fold of the Good Shepherd, which is Christ. I just want to point out one little concept here. Verse 38, Behold, I say unto you that the Good Shepherd doth call you, and in his own name he doth call you, which is the name of Christ. And if you will not hearken unto the voice of the Good Shepherd, to the name by which ye are called, behold, ye are not the sheep of the Good Shepherd. Can we suggest that Alma 5 is a manifestation of the voice of the Good Shepherd calling you to come into his fold more fully than we ever have before? It's this kind, gentle shepherd who's there to lead the people safely into the fold, not to beat them up when they struggle, not to injure them. Uh, it's, it's to heal. It's to protect. Look at verse 39. Now, if you are not the sheep of the good shepherd, of what fold are ye? So you have, you have two very opposite voices calling you, enticing you, come, follow me. And Alma here is saying, if you're not going to listen to the voice of the Good Shepherd, then it doesn't end well. We've got lots of stories before and after about people who didn't try to go through this process, and they they don't care about trying to be good. They want to hearken to the voice of the other – wouldn't even call him a shepherd – the other guy who's calling after them and he leads them down. Look at the bottom of verse 39, Behold, I say unto you, whosoever denieth this is a liar and a child of the devil. He's kind of being pretty blunt here. 
Now look at verse 45. And we're skipping some questions, obviously, along the way here. Look at verse 45. And this is not all. Do you suppose that I know of these things myself? Behold, I testify unto you that I do know that these things whereof I have spoken are true. And how do you suppose that I know of their surety? So here's Alma the Younger saying, I know with absolute certainty that these things are true. How do you suppose that I know? You and I might suspect that he would say, well, hello, I got to see an angel, and I spent three days being racked with eternal torment and, and, and repenting and coming unto to God. Notice how he responds here, verse 46, Behold, I say unto you, they are made known unto me by the Holy Spirit of God. Behold, I have fasted and prayed many days that I might know these things of myself. This coming from a guy who saw an angel, and he doesn't mention the angel in the answer, why do I know these things are true? How do I know of their surety? It's because I fasted and I prayed many days, and the Holy Spirit of God has borne witness to my soul that they're true. Brothers and sisters, there will be many times when your heart will know things that your tongue cannot tell with, with exactness. You can't explain everything you know to everyone. We, we want to have a reason for the faith that lies within us, and we want to explain why we believe what we believe, but there will be times when you just know something is true, and it's because of a lifetime in some cases where you have fasted and prayed, and you have kept wrestling, and you've kept walking against that wind, that opposition, or fighting against that army, using C.S. Lewis's example, and you've kept at it, and you've gone, and you've gone forward, and you now know things that can't be given to other people until they go through the experience that you've gone through as well. It's pretty powerful. And what's interesting about what Tyler just taught is none of us can control whether we're going to see angels. And I remember as a kid, I really had this deep desire to see an angel. Partly I wasn't very mature in my spiritual life, and I thought, if I see an angel, there's proof that God loves me. But what can we control? And again, it's fascinating. Here's Alma, who had one of the most incredible conversion stories ever recorded. And most people don't have these experiences. How does he talk about what he learned? As Tyler is pointing out, it's not because he saw an angel. It's things that he could choose to do and control. And like Alma, we all have this choice. Back in verse 46, I have fasted and prayed many days. You can choose to do that. Earlier we talked about incrementally doing good, or more specifically, regularly and consistently doing good better. And as you do those things, God will reveal himself. We don't need to see angels, although I confess I still would love to see an angel, although then I think I'd be a lot more responsible. I'm not sure I'm ready for that. But I can control whether I am consistent about fasting and prayer and whether I am consistently doing the things that God has laid out in the scriptures and with the brethren in, in our modern day. There's many ways of looking at Alma chapter 5. And let me offer a covenantal perspective. And let me put up some words on the board that will help you help prompt your thinking about the covenants that God is trying to remind us of. And some of these verses we've already looked at, 
And the reason I'm doing this is twofold. One, because covenants are amazing to talk about and learn about, but also just to demonstrate, you can see that when Tyler and I are teaching, there are multiple perspectives to gain from the scripture. And we hope that you see that there are many ways that you can learn from the scriptures, not just one right way to understand something. And let's go back and take a look at what Alma says in verse 6. Have you sufficiently retained in remembrance the captivity of your fathers? So there's this powerful word of remember. And this word has covenantal contexts that are intended to encourage us to actually remember God's covenants. Uh, this is an interesting word. Re means again. And member is like an individual or some item. And God is asking you to put members together again or items together again. And I want you to think about the one of the main purposes of Scripture is to contain the memories or the members of the narrative of God's covenant plan. And what God asks us to do is to review those stories and to put back again those members or those elements of that story into a narrative that we can see the, the salvation arc of God's love in our lives and in the lives of our ancestors. So if we think back to the Bible, you have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God you can trust who saves the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. And he does this at Passover, which later at the time of Jesus becomes the Last Supper, and then we celebrate Easter. And now we do sacrament every week, which is reenacting in some ways Passover. So what I want you to think about from a covenantal standpoint, you are remembering the whole story of salvation at sacrament. You're remembering the great deeds of deliverance that God has done for his people. And in some ways, this is what Alma's asking. Like, are you taking seriously God's plan of salvation? Are you remembering the story elements? And God doesn't just like reveal stats, <laughs> even though I like numbers. He doesn't just lay out like stats of salvation. He tells you a story of individual people and families and nations and his saving acts of grace in terms of how willing they've been um, to accept him and to receive him. And again, the Book of Mormon is full of these stories, and the Book of Mormon helps us to remember each of those salvation elements. That's why the story of Alma the Elder going into captivity, of Limhi's people going into captivity. And Alma is saying, to be on the covenant path, you need to, on a regular basis, put your mind into remembrance of these things. So, based on his foundation of how he knows these things are true, watch as he no longer asks a question in this next segment, but he, instead of using question marks, he's going to use exclamation points. Now, I know there are no exclamation marks on the plates, and any punctuation in the Book of Mormon was added by John Gilbert. I get that. And there aren't exclamation marks here in verse 48. But to me, these are exclamation points coming from Alma the Younger, saying, here's what I know. Verse 48, I say unto you that I know of myself that whatsoever I shall say unto you concerning that which is to come is true. 
and I say unto you that I know that Jesus Christ shall come, yea, the Son, the only begotten of the Father. Did you get that? Three names and titles, Jesus Christ, the Son, only begotten of the Father. And then he gives something else, he says, full of grace and mercy and truth. One thing that uh, is, is kind of insightful, if you've already gone through the Book of Mormon and marked all of the names and titles and references to, to the Savior or to deity, that is a, a remarkable exercise, and if you haven't done that, we would encourage you to do that. The Scripture Plus app actually has marked all the names of deity in red, and that might be a starter for you to see how thoroughly the Scriptures have God in them. Uh, once you've done that, then our next level of recommendation would be now go back through and don't just look for the names and the titles and the way that he's described, but look for his attributes and mark those in a different way. Jerry Wilson, who I had for Institute many, many years ago, he encouraged us to take a, a particular color, in his case it was dark green, and mark the attributes of God in our scripture in dark green, this deep, rich, living color, because that's who I'm trying to be like. I'm trying to, to emulate his attributes, his characteristics, his perfections in my own life. That's the whole point of this EKG exercise is to, to identify where, where I may be lacking a little bit in becoming more like Jesus. So, as you notice here in verse 48, he gives you the titles, but then he gives you the attributes. He's filled with grace, he's filled with mercy, he's filled with truth. It's a different exercise when you go through your scriptures identifying the attributes of God because then it gives you a, a more clear target to aim for of things that I can start implementing in my own life. Now, let's turn the page over. Look at verse 54. Will ye persist in supposing that you're better one than another? Yea, will you persist in the persecution of your brethren? who humble themselves and do walk after the holy order of God. I just have to say that the only person who was perfect didn't look down on those of us who aren't with uh, judgment or condemnation. His only looking down was with compassion, with kindness, with reaching, with trying to sustain and, and wrap in the arms of his love and in the arms of his safety and mercy and his grace. And so, he, this, this last part here that he's giving the people is really focusing them on how they – it's not just introspective on how you're doing in your own relationship with God, it's, okay, now you've worked on that, now how are you treating the people around you? And look at verse 55, yea, will ye persist in turning your backs on the poor and the needy and in withholding your substance from them? Uh, so again, if we're really trying to be more like Jesus, then we have to emulate how he treated people, especially those who are the most vulnerable parts of, of, our, of our society and of the population. And then verse 60, now I say unto you that the good shepherd doth call after you, and if you will hearken unto his voice, he will bring you into his fold, and ye are his sheep, and he commandeth you that ye suffer no ravenous wolf to enter among you, that ye may not be destroyed. Um, to finish off this section, I want to I share with you what has become one of my all-time favorite quotes ever 
This is, uh, this is really profound. It comes from Sister Patricia Holland. Uh, it's in a book that was published clear back in 1997 called Portraits of Eve. In here, listen carefully to what Sister Holland says regarding who you are and your sense of self. You ready? Our Father in Heaven needs us as we are, as we are growing to become. He has intentionally made us different from one another so that even with our imperfections we can fulfill his purposes. My greatest misery comes when I feel I have to fit what others are doing or what I think others expect of me. I am most happy when I am comfortable being me and trying to do what my Father in heaven and I expect me to be. Are you sensing so far that the perspective here is, I am not doing this spiritual cardiogram in comparison to Taylor or my wife or my parents or my siblings or my neighbors or my stake members and ward members. It has nothing to do with any of them. This is between me and the Lord. That's it. Notice this. For many years, I tried to measure the oft-times quiet, reflective, thoughtful Pat Holland against the robust, bubbly, talkative, and energetic Jeff Holland and others with like qualities. I have learned through several fatiguing failures that you can't have joy in being bubbly if you're not a bubbly person. It's a contradiction in terms. Can you picture this, comparing Sister Holland with Elder Holland and her saying this? I have given up seeing myself as a flawed person because my energy level is lower than Jeff's, and I don't talk as much as he does, nor as fast. Giving this up has freed me to embrace and rejoice in my own manner and personality, in the measure of my creation. Ironically, that has allowed me to admire and enjoy Jeff's ebullience even more. Oh, how grateful I am for uh, this concept that I no longer have to beat myself up because I may not be as smart, as engaging, as funny, as thoughtful, as good with people, or as, as all these other people that I see around me. What a blessing it is to be able to focus on trying to come unto Christ and being perfected in him with my unique set of strengths and struggles, challenges and, and glorious gifts that God has, has granted to each one of us as we've come down here. So, as you, as you close off your chapter 5 uh, experience as you study this, we would hope and pray that you take this chapter very, very personally and that it's very uh, introspective and that it will seriously connect you with heaven. Okay? Now, Alma finishes with the people in Zarahemla and he sets the church in order and he says, okay, now, finally, I get to go out and do some traveling because he's been wholly confined to the judgment seat for all these years that he's, that he's since Alma chapter 1. And so now for the first time he's going out to, uh, to the east, city east, which is Gideon, 
and he's going to pick up the story in chapter 7. When, uh, when Alma arrives in Gideon, he doesn't quite know what he's going to find regarding the church. He's, he's kind of surprised when he sees, hey, you're doing better than the people in the church in Zarahemla were doing, and it's not to compare, it's the fact that here he has come ready to teach a certain message, and he's saying, oh, wait, you, you don't need that call to repentance quite the same as maybe he had needed to deliver in Zarahemla. And so what you get in chapter 7 is one of the sweetest sections of the entire scripture canon that we have available to us where Alma is able to open up and talk about some of the, the deep, sweet things regarding the infinite nature of Christ's atonement and his suffering for us. Uh, I remember years and years ago, more than two decades ago, when I was a student up at Utah State at the Institute, I remember watching a, a young single little fireside or a, a, a broadcast at the time from El, uh, at the time Elder M. Russell Ballard, and he said something there. I don't remember his exact words, but it it, it left a, an, a deep impression on me. He said we could teach you a lot more about some of the mysteries of the universe and the mysteries of eternity. He said, we could talk about Kolob more than we do as general authorities, but he said, until we as a group collectively figure out how to have more faith in Christ and repent of our sins and, and keep the principles and the ordinances of the gospel, he said, we're not going to talk to you about Kolob at any great length. That's, that's an important principle when it comes to a family or a, a, a ward or a stake or a church collectively. Instead of getting frustrated that maybe the leaders in your local or your general level aren't telling more big and grand, grandiose doctrines, maybe the message is mm, we're still struggling with having deeper faith in Jesus Christ and trusting him more and really, truly repenting of our sins more fully. Look at uh, chapter 7 as he launches into his, his speech. This is one of the most profound verses in the entire Book of Mormon. Chapter 7, verse 7, for behold, I say unto you, there be many things to come, and behold, there is one thing which is of more importance than they all. For behold, the time is not far distant that the Redeemer liveth and cometh among his people. Brothers and sisters, far more important than worlds without number and kolob and the deep, deep doctrines and all the things yet to come in the millennium and all the things that have happened in the past, far more important than all of those is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life, performed a perfect, a complete, and infinite atonement, and now sits enthroned in yonder heavens on the right hand of the Father. That is of more importance than everything else we could ever, ever talk about, and that's why this book keeps coming back to Christ. Every page, every chapter, you can find ways to, uh, to connect with him. 
Now, Alma launches into some descriptions. Keep in mind, this is still, we're about, you know, 80 plus years away from Jesus being born. Look at verse 10. Behold, he shall be born of Mary. So, over here in the New World, in the Americas, we have revealed the name of the mother of Jesus, Mary. He shall be born of Mary at Jerusalem, which is the land of our forefathers, she being a virgin, a precious, and a chosen vessel. I just have to throw this out here because some people make fun of the Book of Mormon because they'll say, oh, come on, everybody knows Jesus was born in Bethlehem and the Book of Mormon says he's born in Jerusalem. Look carefully at Alma's prepositions here. He shall be born of Mary at Jerusalem. At is not in. Bethlehem is about five miles south of Jerusalem, and it is the least of the villages in the region round about Jerusalem, and probably the least known. So, here you get this, this prophet speaking about the coming of Christ, he doesn't say that the baby is going to be born in Jerusalem, it's born at Jerusalem. This won't get you into heaven, but back in chapter 1, Nephi told you that his father Lehi, having dwelt at Jerusalem in all his days, uh, it, he uses the exact same word, he doesn't say in, and that's fascinating because later on in the story, Nephi and his brothers are outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem and they say, let us go down to the land of our father's inheritance and get the, the gold, silver, and precious things and bring them back up to Jerusalem. In other words, the dad lived somewhere around near Jerusalem in the vicinity, but not in Jerusalem. Jesus isn't going to be born in Jerusalem. That won't get anybody into heaven. It's just, it's kind of sad when some people put up walls and barriers of unbelief against the Book of Mormon because some person who wants to, to throw the, the entire book under the bus says, see, he wasn't born in Jerusalem, he was born in Bethlehem, and instead of looking carefully at what it says, they just take that and then discount the entire book. When you look at it really closely, every attempt to discount the Book of Mormon actually becomes a sign of its truthfulness if you just keep digging down and looking at the details more fully, okay? Now, I digress. Here's the important thing, verse 11. He shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this, that the word might be fulfilled. This word, that, is really important because it's a connector word. So, watch in verse 11, 12, and 13. In fact, you, if you like marking your scriptures, just circle all of the that's. There are quite a few of them here. And connect them. So, he's going to suffer pains, afflictions, and temptations of every kind, and this, that the word might be fulfilled, so that prophecy can be fulfilled. Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the holy prophets. It's what he does. Notice this next part. What is the prophecy that's being fulfilled that said he would take the pains and the sicknesses of his people? Now look at verse 12. He will take upon him death, that, so that, he may loose the bands of death which bind his people. 
okay, and he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Now the Spirit knoweth all things, nevertheless the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, that he might take upon him the sins of the people, that he might blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ suffered for not just our sins and the consequences of our sins, but the pains and the the uh, sicknesses, the infirmities. It's almost as if he's saying, I want to know according to the flesh how to succor my people. I want to know exactly what they're going through to the point where the day will come when each one of us will get to stand in front of the Savior, and he will not look with questioning eyes saying, what was that like? Really, what was it like to go through that combination of, of physical, mental, emotional struggles of mortality? Jesus will not look at anybody with questioning eyes. He will look with knowing eyes at every one of you. He's the only one who perfectly knows what you're going through and consequently is the only one who can perfectly succor you, run to you, provide this foundation for you to be able to endure it well and move forward in life. Brothers and sisters, this, this life was not intended to be simple. This life is intended to be a test. It was intended to stretch us, to make us uh, reach and rely on heaven because we can't rely on ourselves because of our struggles along the way. But we have one who perfectly understands us. In fact, he gets you better than you get you. He knows why you're doing better than you know why you're doing it. And he is the only solution we have to move forward and to try to become better and to try to treat people around us better. It's only through him that we can have any hope to do any of that. I love the Lord. The more I read about him, the more I understand his, uh, his perfection. The more I understand his perfection, the more I feel of his love, and the more I feel of his love, the more I love him and want to be like him and uh, I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope you feel how joyful the scriptures are. The gospel is so invigorating and exciting, and just we hope that you feel loved, that you feel that God knows you, and he has preserved these words for your benefit. And we really appreciate you taking time to explore the scriptures with us, and we encourage you to spread light and goodness throughout your life.